Hello, and welcome to another edition of the APA Podcast. In this episode, we bring you a roundtable discussion on water shortage and drought, originally broadcasted on KVMR Radio in Nevada City, California, July 13, 2015. Discussion participants include Frank Meacham, San Luis Obispo Board Supervisor from District 1 and former Planning Commissioner and Mayor of Paso Robles, California, Tom Ted, Director of the Office of the Columbia River at the State of Washington's Department of Ecology, Vic Ferreira from Nevada County's Office of Emergency Services, and Jim Schwab, AICP, Manager of APA's Hazards Planning Center. This is our second of two live roundtable discussions in this 30-day public facilitation program that actually started June 21st with the help of KVMR and some activities at uh, KNCO. The unions pitched a couple uh, uh, articles and so forth. But today is all about what happens when too many wells go dry in a community. What then? What what goes on? Today's show will address uh, two topics. The first topic that we'll be talking about for about a half hour here will be different kinds of water shortage. It happens in different ways, in different places. So we will be looking at the San Luis Obispo County, California location where uh, there is some severe issues with groundwater wells depleting, uh, their, their water supplies depleting. And then we're going to go to Kittitas County in the state of Washington, where they had a different kind of, of water loss up there. Now, the second half of our discussion is going to take a more broad, more extreme view of the drought. If it really gets bad, I mean really gets bad, what then? What do we do? Well, we'll be shedding some light on this later in the broadcast. But I wanted to first make a, make a, oh, just a few announcements to you. We, we want to make this as valuable a broadcast as possible and so we provide a couple tools for you to use if you choose okay one is download periscope.tv that's periscope.tv that way you can go behind the scenes on today's broadcast and you'll be actually a part of the, our, our studio here you can pitch questions and comments by tweeting us and those comments will come to me and in in the studio here and we'll try to answer those live on on the radio you can also call kvmr later in the program and just want to remind you that number is 530-265-9555 the other tool we're giving you is the uh, get on open up a tab on your ipad or on your computer and open up facebook because operation unite has a facebook page and on that page is are, are several maps and pictures of content that we'll be discussing during this next hour so so go ahead and open those up uh, it helps you get a visual on the discussion and might help you come up with more questions or comments and again we the feedback is the most important part of the show now we've got four really interesting guests tonight we have the san luis obispo board of supervisor from district one frank meacham frank has had quite a busy career as a u.s navy man as well as a planning commissioner in paso robles eventually became mayor and and now of course at the same time he was working in the electrical contracting industry for over 20 years this guy's been around his plate is full right now and that's because the issues of groundwater resources have hit paso robles the paso robles watershed where he is very active. We've got Tom Ted, Director of Office of Columbia River. 
the Department of Ecology in the state of Washington, and he's you know he has some roots in Nevada County, Paul. He actually his his family's from here, and 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 Tom is as we speak in South Lake Tahoe, ready to talk to all of us. So anyhow, uh, he'll be here as well. And then in our studio, we've got Vic Ferreira, Nevada County Operation of Emergency Services. You know, if it's a wildfire, if it's flooding, severe winter storms or drought, and who knows what else, Vic's the point man on getting Nevada County residents through the events. So I want to thank you, Vic, for what you do. And, and thank you for being here. I know you're a busy guy, and you, you came a long ways. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. And that's the Office of Emergency Services. There you go. Office. I've been corrected. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then lastly, we've got James Schwab. He's the manager of the American Planning Association and the Hazards Planning Research Center in Chicago. And we were able to catch Jim, who's a very busy guy in Washington, D.C. He will be with us later on in the program to discuss sort of the big broad picture as to what, what's up, what's what's going to happen if we have some very significant changes in, in our water supply. So we've got Tom Teb on the line right now. Let's pop him on. Hey, hey Tom. Good afternoon. Well, how are you? I, you know, I am so thrilled that even though you are with your family in South Lake Tahoe, far, far away from, from the state of Washington, you, you're offering up uh, some time here to talk with us here in California, here in Nevada County in particular, on the water issues. And then we will be connecting with not only you, Tom, but also with Frank Mitchum. We just have to do it separately, as it turns out. So I wanted to ask you maybe when did shortage first get recognized up in the state of 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 Washington where where you are. Thank uh, thank you Steve and thank you for having me on your show tonight. It's a pleasure. I I'm here in South Lake Tahoe and I must say I can really see the effects of drought all the way from my travels from Washington state in the middle of the state all the way to here at South Lake Tahoe. It's it's evident throughout the communities that I've I've traveled through and of course as you probably know the the lake here is below the rim and so the Truckee River is completely dry. It's it's um, a it, it's a very very real situation here in California uh, especially uh well depending on where you live uh, <laughs> there are some areas where people don't even notice it I don't think but uh, yeah, that observation is definitely true. Yeah. So so for Washington state you know in the Yakima Valley where I prim- primarily live and work although we do work throughout the Columbia River Basin. The the issue with the Kittitas County exempt well issue, I think, as it really kind of resonates with, with the everyday person, that really came home to be a problem around 2008 when senior water rights users were expressing their displeasure with the amount of exempt wells, the amount of development that was occurring in Upper Kittitas County. Uh, there was a petition filed. Essentially, it was a a water right uh, issue that eventually had the state of Washington had to take a, a, a rulemaking action, an emergency rulemaking action, which essentially put all groundwater and surface water use to be reserved unless it was water budget neutral. So it changed overnight, I think, the land, sort of the landscape in, in regards to how people could develop their property. Huh. And if 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 back in the day before this thing actually started developing if was it a situation where money maybe could have avoided the issue if if we had a pot of gold out there somewhere or was it more of of a situation that was perpetuated or developed as a result of other things like interaction just between you know water users a sort of priority of use type of concerns 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question, Steve. I think what's happened over the over the decades, and actually the Acme Irrigation Project was built by the United States Bureau of Reclamation in 1905. The large five reservoirs in the Acme Basin were completed in 1917. So many of these reservoirs and many of these Bureau of Reclamation works were created in the early 20th century, and, and we have really been living with them. And essentially, that was the situation in Yakima in the Aqua Basin. And so when we were issuing water rights as a state in the mid, you know, after World War II up to the 80s, we were actually looking at two different sort of, if you will, buckets of water. Surface water that you could see with your naked eye in the river, and then groundwater that we would pump from wells. And with the technology after World War II, the, the availability of groundwater exploded really on the landscape and really created a competing, essentially a competing resource that eventually resulted in a USGS study, a very expensive, very comprehensive study by the United States Geological Survey. And it proved that surface and groundwater were connected and that we were affecting when we took one well or two wells or a hundred wells, we were actually taking someone else's water right. You know, it, it's amazing that, uh, I mean, I was up there. I met you, of course, uh, several years back, and I met a lot of people up in the Clay Ellum area, and they they are so far away from the, where the senior water rights people are, which is down by Parker, I believe, in, in the state of Washington, which is quite quite a distance. So are you saying that the, the, the groundwater, the percolated groundwater, ends up traveling through the subsurface and daylighting in various spots uh, in the surface water bodies, uh, ultimately reaching those people down there? So it was... It was a uh, an issue of of somebody diverting water, and it wasn't it wasn't done fairly, I guess. Yeah, that, I think that's accurate, and I think the state actually came to realize that that was the case with this with this you know new science, as well as court cases. Uh, the state of Washington was taken to court by the Acma Indian Nation, as well as the United States Bureau of Reclamation, who claimed that we were issuing groundwater rights in 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 a harmful way to what they called total water supply available. So there has been a long history of, of legal proceedings and, and essentially uh, winners and looter, losers, if you will, in the water right prior appropriation system in, in Yakima Superior Court that has sort of resulted in this sort of question being uh, forced upon us. In other words, can we continue to sort of drill wells and think that it doesn't affect ultimately the water supply in the base. You know, I, th- I think this is uh, an issue that will be developing and will be quite significant here in, in the state of California. Our laws are different, of course, as you know, with the state of Washington. We've sort of divided up these pots and we have considered up till now that they are actually very much separate from one another when, in fact, they're not, as, as you've demonstrated up in Washington. So uh, this, is a, this is a bone we're going to be dealing with down here in the California region uh, in, in the future. So, uh, yeah. What is the status right now with respect to this permit-exempt well issue where uh, people, they, they had to close down development in Kittitas County on the western side there. Did things open up, and, and how, how was that corrected? How did the, you guys solve that problem? Uh, that, that's a great question, and it was done through, you know, essentially uh, we turned the spigot off, and I don't think, I don't recommend that for anyone. Uh, that's very hard socially. It's very hard financially. It was also right during the economic downturn. Uh, what we ended up doing, though, is working with some private water right holders and creating what's called water banks or water banking. And so it was a little bit of a 
public-private relationship and partnership where we were able to work with water right holders who were willing to put their water into what we call a trust water right program. And because in the basin we had reservoirs high up in the reser- in the basin, we were able to secure from the Bureau of Reclamation a certain amount of, of reservoir storage and essentially put our banked water in that storage, and therefore we could begin a debit and credit system for people who wanted to use water for new homes. So people who came in to the basin and after the, you know, say after the recession and wanted to build a new home, well, their water rights, essentially their beneficial use of that water is, you know, 2010 or later. Water rights in the Yakima Basin have go back to the eight, mid-1880s. So that's the, that's the system. We have a, a, a water right code for groundwater that was established in 1945, and our surface water right code was established in 1917. But it essentially, it is the, based on the code of the West, you know, first and right, first in time, and that makes uh, a, a very challenging situation. But these water banks were the, the key that allowed us to move forward and have economic development while still trying to protect the resource. Hmm. What, what was the emotional response of the public when this whole thing came down? I imagine uh, well, what I saw, it was, yeah, there were a lot of unhappy people. Yeah, I, I think any time when you take something away from someone who feels that they have a right to that, and there are there are legitimate claims to water as just a human, a basic human need, and, and these kind of conversations occur. And you also find people that are found sort of in their midstream or midway through a development of a piece of property suddenly caught in a, in a regulatory a line that's been drawn. All of those issues are extremely difficult and very hard to work through. Did you find that a, sort of a marriage of public and private groups actually helped significantly in coming up with some water shortage solutions. Did you, did you find it getting people together, both private, public and private work? Did it work? Yeah, actually, I think it did. I think I think on on the the private part, there was this sense of outrage that how can this be so broken? And with that sense of outrage, became opportunity and creativity and how to solve the problem. I think the crisis also gave the government, myself and others in government, a chance to look at the problem differently and try to be as creative and as helpful as we can. So I think in, the, in that respect, I think it, it created a, uh, a synergy that we are still working with today. And as we move into lower Kittitas County, which we will be in the next six, six to eight months, to have a program that's similar to Upper County, you know, that is going a lot smoother, I think, because we have these existing banks and we have these existing processes that people can see how to get from point A to point B. You know, as as in any 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 problems that jump up, certainly in the, in the uh, in the situations where you have emergency services required, that uh, there are spontaneous needs that are needed, that there is some grunting and groaning in the beginning, but we figure it out along the ways. And so you're making quite uh, quite a great bunch of improvements. I have talked to the real estate community up there since then. I'm, I'm constantly actually talking to them and uh, finding that people are becoming more and more satisfied with what's going on. You mentioned that in the border of, of, Yak- of the Yakima area, I'm not positive of the name, uh, Momkin, there, there's a, a place there where there was very strong leadership that really yeah, helped. Yeah, a small community called Mapton, M-A-B-T-O-N. It's a rural community, very, very um, 
I think lower on the economic scale, but very hardworking folks that are are blessed with some great leadership that have actually gone in and looked at their city infrastructure and have have foresaw that they need to kind of build and create a revenue stream to improve that infrastructure, both in terms of their wastewater as well as their water supply. And for a rural and sort of economically depressed community to be working with the Department of Commerce in the state of Washington and other areas that provide creative financing, they have been able to kind of take a very broken system and begin to rebuild it. So what was it in their ability to lead that? What what was the characteristic? What what made it so good, so successful? You know, honestly, I think it was it was one individual that it basically had enough. You know, that said that they didn't want to live like this, that they didn't want their families to live like this, that they wanted to make a change. And, it, you know, this this gentleman was uh, incredible in terms of his passion and how he felt about his community and was very successful in raising funds. What, was he a private person or a public person? He was the mayor. I, I'm oh, sorry, I don't okay. have his name. Oh, I that's, that's I did, but I was, I, I was very impressed with how he was able to kind of turn a very a very difficult situation around very quickly within a matter of three to four years. You know, it's been my experience with all the various interviews that I've done around the country that responsibility, trust, and respect are number one. If you want to get get uh, find successes, that that has to be uh, achieved. And did this mayor achieve those three things? Absolutely. You know, I mean, he, he represented his community forthright. He was earnest. He was trustworthy. And, you know, we felt the same obligation to him. Yeah, that's that's great. We 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 need to probably uh, copycat some of that those behaviors down here. Although we have a lot of good things happening in California right now in in yes, dealing with do. our very yes, extreme conditions. Now, the state and local collaboration. I mean, t- typically, as you well know, Tom, you get all kinds coming at you, and you know, sometimes people don't like the state getting involved. But but when you when you when you start working with the local people in a collaborative sort of scene, do you find it? Uh, easily achieved or where, where, where's the the easy line to getting that to actually work and work well <laughs> uh, Steve if I could bottle that I would uh, I think that is really about people and their relationships with one another and the ability to kind of work on a problem that we all collectively think we need to fix and work on and water supply and water infrastructure for our future is absolutely one of those things as a society and when you find those individuals in a community or in a, a city or a rural area, you, you can see it. And it's everything from a farmer to a mayor, uh, you know, to, to a talk show host like yourself who cares very much about what's going on in their community and trying to make a difference. Well, you know, you're really making a good point. You need to own it. That's number one. Until you own it, nothing ever happens. I would suggest right now some of the people listening in to, uh, if, if they're inclined to own it, <laughs> that you call in, and, or at least prepare to call in. Write down some questions. Get a pad of paper and a pencil next to you and write down some questions or, or comments. Just very short, though. We want to answer as many as possible and let us know. Also, get on Periscope.tv. Yeah, the number to call is 265-9555. We really want to hear you. And we want to be able to answer these questions. Owning it is part way into solving it. So let's hear from you. You mentioned a lot of times that uh, sometimes, or at least when you, you and I have spoken, that sometimes the community needs to feel the collapse. In other words, there has to be a, th- a pain threshold that's reached before people start 
responding in an appropriate way. Maybe you can explain that just a little bit through your experiences. Yeah, I, I think when the state, when I was involved, when we issued the emergency order to that essentially stopped all new groundwater withdrawals in Upper Kittitas County, I mean, that was when we shut the spigot off and, and, and no new homes, no new development could occur unless it was what we called water budget neutral. In other words, there was some water right that would replace the, the new use that was occurring. That that moment uh, or that period of time was a very difficult period of time. It was a essentially uh, uh, the ability for us to do this as regulators always existed, but I don't think we ever really exercised that, that right until it kind of got to be a critical point. And the Acoma Basin has been in a critical point for many decades, and we have both state and federal legislation to try to fix the situation. But to continue to spend millions of dollars, if not more, on sort of the big fixes and then not be honest with ourselves that the fact that the barrel still had a hole in it when we continue to drill wells or rural homes was just a reality check that people struggled to come to grips with. And as they bought a piece of property, and typically it was timbered property that was from previous railroad, you know, expansion of the West, if you will. A lot of that property didn't come with water, but they expected to build their dream home. And in many cases, in decades before, people did. And so changing that paradigm was a very difficult well, I imagine these types of situations create, well, they certainly do here, a lot of neighbor-against-neighbor neighbor type of conflicts. And the expectation that that water is always available if you want it is not really true. We are we are working with that here in California. There are places like the Central Valley where we're, you know, everyone needs water. And the farmers most certainly need water because they're not from the ground because they're not getting it. It's not available in the surface water bodies and, and conflicts are, are developing. Yet, yet, as you said, the... Uh, the the tank has a hole in it. We're always we're just we continue to lose water from that resource. So we have to somehow come about to realize and own it, own it. The fact that we need to curb at times our our uh, uh, use of water, P- tone it back, share the pain though. Not not that everybody needs to, you know, not any one particular group has to get hit by it. And I'm not talking just about the Central Valley. I mean, we have those problems in our own county, Nevada County. Uh, we most certainly have it in the Paso Robles region in San Luis Obispo County with what's going on down there and and many other counties in the Sierras uh, as we go south and north of Nevada County. Hey, Tom, I want to thank you for <laughs> where I feel like I'm sharing part of your vacation in South Lake Tahoe, but uh, we don't want to share anymore. You've got to get out there and have some fun. So uh, thank you so much for this evening's discussion and enjoy the rest of your family vacation there in Tahoe, okay? Maybe we'll be talking again yeah. once you're back in Washington. Okay. Thank you, Stephen, so much for having me on your show tonight. Uh, enjoyed. Bye-bye. Hey, bye-bye. Hey, so let's go ahead and get Frank Meacham on, and I'm going to pass this over with, to, to Vic, really, because we – Vic, you shared with me a, a situation – oh, I guess it's called a situation report, which talks about – other areas of California, including our own, where there are significant issues of drying out, drying out wells. I mean, are you hearing much of that at your office? Uh, right. Not for Nevada County, we haven't. Uh, but we are, um, within a couple of weeks, going to put out a uh, on the web, a basically it's a well called a well reporting form, where we want to start polling residents of Nevada County to see um, how many dry wells we actually have, to see if we have an emergency-type situation we may seek assistance. So we'll be going in about two weeks and going online and make sure we get that publicized through all the media. 
so people can go with wells and actually put in a report. Oh, that's a good idea. We were we were uh, it was God sent that we had some of the water that we did get up here in Northern California, which is far better than many other parts of the of the Sierras even, which uh, refilled some of the more shallow zones that receive their water more quickly. But if you if you scan some of the dry well reports, Tulare's lost something like one thousand seventy nine wells. Right, and you're talking about a uh, affecting a population of about four thousand people. Oh, so uh, they yeah. uh, they obviously have an emergency there, and uh, they are receiving assistance from the state for uh, those wells that uh, supply drinking water and sanitation. Yeah, I mean, what about some other? Have you heard anything about Madera County? Eighty four uh, dry wells, Mariposa thirty seven, uh, Tuolumne uh, two hundred, San Laos forty nine. Uh, Tehama, 34. Butte County, 60. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're all trying to, uh, I shouldn't say try, but they're all uh, contemplating um, accessing uh, some of the funds that are available. But it is a complicated process. Um, You know, the county has to declare an emergency, has to prove it's an emergency, depending on the population, the number of wells dry. Yeah. And uh, that's why we want to go out and do that survey. So the, really, there, there's a lot of criteria that, that defines what an emergency is in a drought situation. Is that right? Correct, correct. And this is kind of uh, this is something new in California. Um, most of the time when we think about emergencies, we think of floods and wildland fires and tsunamis and things like that. But for the governor to actually declare a drought as an emergency with the, um, with the funding that goes along with that is uh, quite a different uh, perspective on what an emergency is. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we have a question that came in off of, of the telephones or periscope here. And... And it's, I believe it's from Stephen Sock, and he's making a comment about, you know, why are people watering their lawns and not growing food? How bad does it have to get? People say we survived a drought in the 70s, but that was the was with one half the population. You know, there are so many different water uses that we have in this state, and for some people it's real and some people it's not. And unfortunately, I think what works against us a lot of times is the success of our water purveyors. I can't remember the last time I turned on the tap in a in a you know in a place that receives treated water and nothing showed up. Well, I do remember one. It was in India. It wasn't in our own country. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't happen, and, and that's sort of a reality check for a lot of people. I, I think they just don't realize that the pain threshold that I mentioned earlier, that hasn't been reached yet. So it, it's, it's uh, really broadcast like this one and, and other activities in our communities that really will bring that forward. And then, and then Stephen, I think, I think we will see those changes. But it takes each of us saying something to our neighbors and each other in a nice way to uh, cause that change to happen. And that's correct. And, and, you know, just to comment on that, where NID and as well as a, a Truckee Donner Public Utility District, they, they have to follow the state regulations on um, how much percentage they need to cut their water, which is 36% in Nevada oh, County, the western side. Yes, yeah. it is. But the unfortunate thing is that there are no water police. There is no organization that's going to go out and patrol neighborhoods. So they are relying on neighbors calling NID, and then NID will try to educate those particular people that are watering their lawns on Saturday morning for two hours at a time, and they want to take the education stance first to kind of change our way of thinking. Yeah, it's a cultural thing, and when you really think about it, the stressors on this whole water situation is us, those of us that use water, and so it's those of us that use water that can pass the word in a nice way and get people motivated rather than ticked off at each other right. to make these positive changes. And it's, and it's documented that actually during the summer months, the majority of the water that is used is used for outdoor landscaping. Oh. Oh, those type of things. Yeah. So, you know, we may have to get used to seeing brown lawns, you know, and uh, maybe not washing our cars as often as we do. And uh, those are the cultural changes. Those are some of the changes that we have to face. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Paul, do we have Frank? Yes, sir. Hello there, uh, Supervisor. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Well, thank you for being so patient. Uh, we've, uh, you probably remember, we've spoken a few other times on the telephone, but I'm, I'm so happy you're with us today. Maybe you can explain what has happened in the Paso Robles region. 
Well, first of all, I've been listening to the show, and I, I heard Tom. I was just up in Washington about two weeks ago. My wife and I went on vacation up to uh, Seattle and then over to the Kingston Bay, stayed with some friends, and then went over to Forks on the other side of the, con- of, uh, the state. Interestingly enough, there was a high fire danger low moisture content in a lot of the forests and they were being they were starting to get very concerned about the potential of drought I, I think that the common thing that I'm hearing from everybody we're in this together we're all in this thing and it's taking some a little bit longer to recognize it and acknowledge it but uh, at this particular point where we are right now I don't believe that we are in an extreme crisis as some of our my fellow uh, Californians over in the Central Valley and some of those areas. I mean, they're in pretty pretty bad situations. Over here, we have, and one of the difficulties when I heard you mention the number of wells that have gone dry in different areas, what we're experiencing here, which I've been told that is the same thing throughout the state, people are a little reluctant to mention that their well is dry or even acknowledge that, mainly because they're concerned about two or three things. One is the real estate value. Two is the uh, lack of the fire protection. And three, their insurance issues. So a lot of the reporting, I think, is, is minimized basically because of those concerns. So right now, where we are in California, and for those that are not familiar with where my little town of Paso Robles is, is we're on the about halfway between San Francisco, Los Angeles, and about 25 miles inland. We sit on a basin that's about 900 square miles, and we share that with another county, the county of Monterey. About a third of it is in Monterey County. And a good portion of the groundwater basin, the Paso Robles groundwater basin, is in my district. I've grown up here. I'm, I'm nine generations of California. I have grandkids, so they're 11 now. And we've We've been through these drought cycles before. This one, because of increased population, expanded irrigated ag, and an extended drought, is the perfect storm. So two years ago, uh, what we did as a board of supervisors was an elect meeting where we, emergency ordinance, would end uh, any further drilling of wells unless they had the bad right to do so, which meant a permit already, they had to be prepared and uh, have contractual arrangements to plant and then they had the vested right to go. That would be controversial, but you had to be fair somewhat since that time. And that night, we had, like I said, it was 11 hours, and there were people that were angry on both sides of the table. And at the end of the meeting, after I got through, I told my assistant, I said, thing. I said, we're all in this together. I said, so let's find out. So I got three from each side of the table and sat down with them for almost five to six months, and that's where the uh, legislation that was proposed by Assemblyman Nasajian, uh, 2453, to establish a hybrid water district over this basin so that the folks, the folks that overlie the basin would be the ones to manage it. You know, it seems, Frank, that that you are in the perfect situation. Unlike, as you said, the Central Valley is in the thick of it right now. You're in a position where uh, it's yep. the frog in the boiling water, but it's not quite boiling yet. It'll be getting there, but it's not quite boiling yet, and so you have a great opportunity. I've spoken with a lot of people in the in the Paso Robles region, and I guess there's there's uh, there's really a lot of discussion and talk about developing a a groundwater sustainability agency, 
and and maybe we could talk about that in just a moment here. But I wanted to recognize Paige from Nevada County uh, that that asked us about people watering the laws or their lawns. But also there was Stephen Sock from Rough and Ready who talked about Garrett Hardin's, who is an author of the Tragedy of the Commons, and that that is that is so true. And we each uh, use a resource in a way that doesn't consider that everyone else is probably using it too. We can end up in real trouble. And his his comment was the term water shortages is a bit erroneous and it's I'm not sure what this means here it's longinus of demand and I'll have to sit with that one a little while and see how I might respond to that Amber from Grass Valley she mentions geoengineering it can really affect our climate I I suppose that and many other things can affect our climate also Uh, Mark from Grass Valley uh, 38% of us uh, save water in our county how much of that water staying here and how much of it is 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 being uh, down the you know is going down the hill? I mean, I don't have answers to that. It's, it's uh, we have to, we'd have to quantify that. But uh, remember, we're sharing water. We don't own any own any of this. We use it, and once we use it, it uh, it, it reshows itself elsewhere. It's it's cleaned up naturally, or because of us in our treatment facilities, and then it's reused again and again and again until it reaches the ocean or get, evaporates. So uh, so that's how the whole system works. We need to be aware that we're always in a sharing mode and to be frugal. Frank, you you mentioned that, or actually I was mentioning that I had spoken to so many people down there in the Paso Robles region, and the GSA, or the Groundwater Sustainability Agencies, one, it's a, a district that could be created, amongst other things. There's quiet title. Some people feel that they should uh, make sure they uh, appropriate their water and, and safeguard themselves in that fashion, and, and there are some other ideas, too. What's What's sort of the... Are people coming from different silos right now? Because when you have many dry wells developing in a community, you can have many ideas on how to solve that problem. Well, and that's that's something that I've constantly asked, is don't just keep complaining to me. Give me an idea. Give me a solution. Tell me how we can deal with this. Because, you know, when you get elected to office, it doesn't make you automatically smart. you got to be able to go to people to try to figure out those that are actually involved with whatever that issue is and try to understand a little bit more about that. The thing that I've questioned about the quiet title issue, and yes, we do have a quiet title action down here, is that with the GSA and with the groundwater sustainability with Sigma, which basically requires you to manage the basin, even if you have quiet title approved, do you still have to manage it if you're on or in that basin? And I would assume that you would have to, but I don't know how that would be sorted out. So it, it's it's very complicated. I mean, everybody everybody that's dealing with the water issues right now understands the difficulty from a legal standpoint and from a a regulatory standpoint and believe me I don't the last thing we want to do is to regulate anything but I I sat on a panel on the invitation of the governor's office to sit and ask from the Department of Water Resources asked us when do you want to see the state step in and my answer was never but if we've tried everything we can to get a management system in place, if we put an AB 3030, which is the groundwater management plan, if we've tried to establish a groundwater uh, or a water district that would manage the basin, if we provided all the data that shows what needs to be done, and we can't get there, then I think it's, it's incumbent upon the state to step in and back us up. So, I mean, what I'm really hearing you say, and I, I agree with you, is that um, if we cannot, as a community, come together then we will have outside uh, 
resources coming in and sort of dictating as to what will solve the problem. It's, it's kind of like having a, a child and you, you explain to them the rights and the wrongs and they continue to make mistakes and eventually you just come in and do it for them. And it's just, it's not actually you, palatable, but go ahead. I think you have to give, you, you give everybody the choice and the option. And the options are these, there's three of them. The first one is that they vote to approve a water district that the overliers of the basin will manage the basin. If they don't want to do that, they don't want to establish that, then it falls back to the county of the flood control district, which is comprised of all five supervisors, three of which don't sit over the basin, which will be making decisions on that basin, on, and, and they have actually, um, I guess, no, no dog in the hunt in that particular case. Or the third choice is to have the state step in and start monitoring, metering, and do whatever they have to do. And I talked to the Department of Water Resources and said that we, ha- we don't want to come in, but if we have to, we're going to come in and meter, we're going to come in and monitor, we're going to tell you what your allocation is going to be, and we don't have to go out for a vote for anything. So it's kind of pick your poison. Which one of the three do you want? Local control, or do you want somebody else to do it? And really, some of the, the latter uh, possibility probably isn't even it's not going to work because we have to have our handle on the water balance. And the, the, the tendency would be if you're not tracking things that you will end up using more water than is actually available. And that yeah. really causes a problem. I mean, there's, everyone hears, oh, there's plenty of water around in, 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 in the general sense. But, you know, specifically, if I don't have water at my house, then <laughs> I think it's time to move. I need water every day, well, so next, it becomes my important. Next, my next-door neighbor is a, is a winemaker for one of the big wineries out here. He's an Australian. He was down in Australia during their 10-year drought. And he told me a year or two ago, he says, California is really going to have to come to grips with this or it's going to be devastating in the years to come. My biggest fear right now is not running so much out of water. I think we can manage this. But there's all this talk about an El Nino. If we get an El Nino, this happened back in, I, I can remember, in the late uh, 80s and early 90s. And we had the Miracle March rains and everything went away. Everybody was, okay, everything's going to be fine again. But if you take a look at the reservoirs, what we've got in the reservoirs now, if you take a look at the lack of snowpack, that El Nino isn't going to help. It's going to do something for the immediate situation. But for the long term, I don't think it's going to do a thing. And I hope that people don't forget that. We've got to put things in place that will allow for management and uh, sustainability for the years to come. That's really true, and I, I think the only way to actually keep that in people's mind is to have some sort of public facilitation program that's ongoing, but not not, not too much, because there are a lot of things to think about in our communities, but, but to keep that in mind, whether or not, uh, you know, like right now, should we be worried about floods? We're hearing about the El Nino's going to be possibly bigger than 1997. That's pretty right. serious, and that's going to cause some serious flooding. But then again, it's going to probably be a lot of warm stuff, and we're not going to have a snowpack developing. So we still have also the the issues related to water shortage uh, that would be not satisfied in the long term. And, and California is leaning, and the climate's leaning towards uh, more of its traditional geologic patterns <laughs> of, of climate, yep. and that is uh, drier, more longer droughts and hotter periods of time, that, that sort of thing. We have a comment made by, or a question from Erin in Grass Valley. She's heard of uh, a lot of mandating of 25% of water conservation for homeowners, yet fracking still is, is exempt from that. What is going on there? She'd asked us to comment. Well, 
as you know, we have very uh, complex set of laws, and, and we have a very diversified use of water. Fracking is highly controversial in California, as well now, and not just in California, but in most of the states. Uh, these are conversations that need to continue to be made. I don't have an answer for that, although uh, we do have to look at the uh, the variables in this whole thing, which includes how much water are they actually using, where are they using it, where is it coming from, how is it affecting the, the critical needs of the region, and uh, is it being dealt with in such a fashion that it can be placed back into the ground again in a safe manner to be reused because, again, we're sharing water constantly. We don't want to take it out of the system and end up with, at a deficit. So so stay hooked into that, Aaron, and uh, as long as you do that and we continue with responsibility, respect, and and, and, tr- and eventually trust will build from that and we'll, we'll come to some positive s- solutions on that. Um, I wanted to ask you also, Frank, that... Um, this concept of tragedy to the commons, I think one of our previous uh, call-in qu- uh, questions uh, referenced that. Do you feel like the tragedy of commons is, is, has happened where you are, where people figure, oh, everyone else is taking, you know, they're, they're watching, so I can go ahead and take what I need right now? You know, initially, I would say yes. But as time progresses, and I think that the awareness of the drought has become much more significant, and I mean, you can't pick up a newspaper, you can't go on any kind of a news broadcast at all without hearing something about the California drought. So whether people want to acknowledge it or not, slowly they have become more aware of that situation, and we're starting to see a lot more folks that are getting on board of the carrying out the lawns and trying to do whatever they have to do to try to help. And you know, from a, I know one of the comments that Tom made was that it's difficult socially, financially, but let me tell you how tough it is politically when you have both sides of a room that are fussing about something. But I think that, but there is a commonality in all of it, is that everybody realizes there's, there's three things we have to have. I mean, it's almost like a fire. You have to have fuel, air, and uh, heat. Well, to sustain life, you've got to have food, water, and air. So without one of those, we're history. I think everybody's realizing now that if we want to be able to sustain our community and sustain our economy, that we're all going to have to be participatory in how we manage this resource and not be so wasteful with it. I, For the longest time, I saw a lot of waste continuing to happen, even in, in the community that I live in. And I'm slowly starting to see that go away. The, the lawns that were lush green aren't lush green anymore. The water that was running down the streets from my neighbor isn't running down the street anymore. Um, people are starting to acknowledge the problem. But it's still going to get to, uh, my, my concern too was coming into the summer, we're going into a, a very, very hot summer again. And any of the reservoir totals that we have, you're going to lose a lot of that to evaporation. And what are you going to have once you get the El Nino? And you mentioned the fact that it's a warm it's a warm rain. That's not going to do anything for our snowpack. It's not going to do anything for the for the Sierras, which is important to all of us. It will supply us here with some of the uh, reservoirs that we've got. It'll provide a lot more water there. But if if and I don't, I'm not smart enough to understand the, uh, the climate change issues. But something's happening in my mind. Something's going on with the climate. And if it is what they're telling us is that we're going to have some of these heavy rains for a short period and longer drought periods, we need to pay attention to that and start figuring out how we're going to deal with it. And when I was asked to Sacramento, I went up there and, and they had a roundtable discussion. I said, well, 94, I was a 
commissioner, I picked up this document that said, Water, Will There Be Enough, written by the Department of Water Resources. Was an error. And I picked up a document that said, Are you prepared for the California drought? So the question is, Are we going to do something about it? Or are we going to keep talking about it? And I mean, collectively throughout the room, everybody was saying, We need to start moving ahead and do things. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure. Well, we do have a lot to talk about here. I mean, uh, in fact, our next guest, which is James uh, uh, Schwab, we're going to be talking about both uh, the mitigation aspects and the response aspects. You need both of them. One one affects the other. If we prepare for a drought, then our responses will be a lot more effective later when actually we have a drought. So we'll be getting on to that. But, Frank, I want to thank you for your time this evening and, and speaking to us uh, on this. And I'm, I'm hopeful that I will be coming down to Paso Robles and talk to you directly some more about some uh, very some details as to how I think maybe some of these issues can be won over by the population down there who uses wells, which I understand you're talking about uh, possibly 4,400 well owners who are could be affected by this possible groundwater sustainability agency that might you know, that could be created, which I think is a, a very, very effective idea. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. So thank you very much, and you have a wonderful rest of the evening, okay? Thank you. I'll be listening to the rest of your show, and uh, I'll be off the line. Thank you. Okay, Frank. We'll see ya. All right. Well, Paul, we're I'd like gonna... to remind everyone you're listening to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and we're going to go with this program until about 10 minutes after 7, so democracy now will be slightly delayed, but it will be coming on about 10 after 7. Hey, Vic, I had... NID wasn't able to come tonight. I think they're a very important part of this conversation. We're right. talking about both mitigation and response. Right. right. And, but, but, you know, Chip Close, who's, who's very much... He's part of operations over there at NID. He, he, I, I pitched some questions to him that I thought the, viewer, the listeners would have interest in, in hearing the answers for. And maybe you can give me your reads on, read on this, too. Sure. One thing I asked him was, how would NID provide emergency water to domestic well users in the event of well failures, if we had more significant well failures in our county? And he said that the district has a program already that allows for purchasing of water from hydrants. And they meter the water coming out of hydrogen, and then the person, the customer, gets billed. But there are some you have to qualify for this, but to qualify, you have to be within the district's boundaries, and you have to come by the district's office to pick up an application. That sounds pretty pretty simple. Are you hearing about these things being done? Right, yeah. I'm not really familiar with that program, uh, but I do know NID has a few programs out there. And we're talking about the, um, I guess I'll say the onesies and twosies. Um, if we start getting where there's a few hundred dry wells, then we'll be going probably the route of declaring emergency and having the state come in. Not to manage a program, but to offer assistance financially, financially, uh, to uh, for the county to assist with everything from um, bottled water to putting tanks in. Um, and even maybe drilling deeper for their wells. There are programs out there for that. You know, it sounds like, that sounds so similar to what's happening right now in Porterville, which is southeastern part of the Central Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the type of uh, state support that's being offered there. And and there's a lot of private sector uh, bottled water and other things going into that region to help those people out there. Another question I asked Chip over at NID's operations section was, could there be a prohibitions at some point on new taps? new water taps if if the drought worsened and here's how he answered that he said that it's not likely because it's domestic use there's a priority of use when you start to mitigate a pro- or actually respond to a problem and uh, those priorities are the highest priority is human consumption 
They get it first. After that, if there's still water left, livestock and animals. After that, perennial crops. And after that, annual crops. So, you know, we're on top of the food chain as far as water goes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh, that's, that's nice to know. Yeah, that is nice to know. So, and, you know, that's how that sits. And, and in regards to water hauling programs, as you, as people, listeners who, who chimed in last time, we were here. We had uh, Garrett from H2O to go. I mean, they're, he, him, his company and there are other companies around that actually haul water, uh, drinking water out to uh, sure. various people that ask him to if their wells go dry so there are other other alternatives too what is it well, well first of all paula from nevada city's asked a question here a little off off uh, what the topic here but uh, can you cloud see to make rain well Vic, maybe you know you were in the air force uh, is those <laughs> did yeah, you the air force i was and didn't uh, drop uh, clouds yeah well <laughs> I, I see your point there you know of course you can cl- you can see clouds the answer there are a lot of people that are saying they see streaks in the sky and this and that and then it may be because seeding is being tried out here to uh, help uh, lessen the pain threshold here that we're experiencing in in california right now do we have jim on board He's online. There he is. Very good. Jim, and how are you? I'm doing fine tonight. Well, you probably had quite a day. You are in Washington, D.C. right now. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. All well, well uh, have you uh, been to the White House, or what, what is it that you're doing there? Uh, I have a, a series of meetings. I was actually supposed to meet with someone at FEMA, but that was uh, undermined by two hours of <laughs> Thunderstorm delays. I bet you would have loved to have all that water out there in California, but so oh, absolutely, it got, got ruined. But uh, there were meetings uh, that HUD and with other you know, various meetings uh, about ongoing projects that uh, the American Planning Association is doing that uh, I have some responsibility for. So, hey, well, you put out, uh, you published a document called "Planning and Drought." And it was done through your organization. I read the entire document. It's 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 quite good, and I'd suggest the reading for those interested in it. Again, it's called Planning and Drought, and James Schwab is the editor of this document. And you can there's a PDF that you could download and and go through it. But maybe you could explain to the listeners how drought really is different from other natural disasters. It really is. Yes. Well, you know, with most disasters. Typically, you know, hurricanes, uh, floods, tornadoes, there is some very clear onset. You know, we have warning for probably up to 48 hours at least with hurricanes. We know they're coming. We can see the storm pattern. It arrives. It does its damage, and then it moves on. With drought, the, the it takes a while to realize that you are in one because it's a very slow-moving onset of the of the event. It takes you know weeks and months to begin to realize, hey, we haven't had any rain for a while, and it's it's one of those disasters that's just kind of got fuzzy edges. It's very ambiguous. You you don't know that it's there. Sometimes until it feels like it's too late to take some of the steps that could have prevented some of the problem. And that's really a concern that all of us have. Uh, the public doesn't respond quickly because this is so slow moving. You don't realize exactly. it until you you've been burnt by it, and uh, and that's that's not a very comfortable thing when you finally get to that point. How do you suggest people and leaders use the national drought mitigation system, which is out there to, for for use? Maybe you can explain what it is first. Uh, the, well, the National Drought Mitigation System is basically a you know, there's a monitoring system 
that is available, you can access a lot of this data over time by plugging into drought.gov, which is run by the National Integrated Drought Information System, which is a portal managed by uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So these resources have been created at the, the federal level. There's also an organization in Nevada, I mean in Nebraska, called the National Drought Mitigation Center. They're housed at the University of Nebraska. They work a lot with NIDAS. They maintain drought maps. So you can go to either of those two websites and really access a good deal of information about current conditions, uh, ongoing predictions of weather patterns and the like. You've also touched on something else I really want to bring up here right off the bat, which is, you know, we earlier this year, speaking of more traditional disasters for the most part, we released a newer report uh, called Planning for Post-Disaster Next Generation. One of the things that we discussed at some length in there was the differentiation in terms of planning for post-disaster recovery between planning before the event ever happens and then, of course, in the case of typical disasters, uh, planning after the event has passed. That's a a much much more difficult line to draw in the case of drought. But that pre- and post-dichotomy is still important with regard to drought because much of what we need to think about is what are we in a position to do in planning before we get into these situations to make ourselves better prepared to establish a more drought-resilient community. And, and that's something that we can certainly go into, but that's a, it's very important to think about that. And one of the things I say you know, is... I've been saying for years with regard to almost any kind of disaster is that even if it's even if you're dealing with something after the fact the mitigation measures you undertake are still very powerful for the future that you know the aftermath of one disaster is always the prelude to the next because any event that has happened once can clearly happen again. Oh, I agree with you. And I think I, I think you bring that message out uh, quite a bit in that document that you that you uh, put put forward. And a quick message right. is that you are listening to community supported radio KVMR FM Nevada City KCPC Camino Placerville and Democracy Now will start in about seven minutes. You know, Jim, groundwater well owners here in our county, Nevada County, are have a, have a great concern too, and not just in our county, but I mean, all the places that uses use these groundwater wells. Most of us don't have backup plans, and I don't know if in your drought uh, and, and planning document that you would you address that specifically, but it is a, a concern out here. Without a backup plan, without any kind of monitoring on these wells, we don't uh, we don't know till it's too late that our wells have gone dry, and that's sort of the whole thing we're talking about here. What happens if too many wells go dry in a community? Do you have any thoughts on how a backup plan uh, may be talked about as far as uh, from a planning perspective? Yes. Well, this is really why why I made the point just a second ago about the pre-disaster planning or pre-drought planning in this case, which is that you can establish some triggers. If the situation, you know, just doing some logical analysis and some logical planning and hopefully keeping the public involved in this and helping them get educated to understand the, the scope and the nature of the problem, to say, okay, if we get to this point, that will trigger the following actions on the part of, name it, the city, the county, the jurisdictions involved, 
you know, with regard to, say, water conservation, if we get below this threshold, we want everyone to know that we are going to have to implement the following kinds of, of restrictions. And it may also involve some, you know, obviously, as you just mentioned, some monitoring steps as well so that you can really stay abreast of the situation and, and understand just how deep a crisis you're in. Yeah, it's, it seems that really we, we probably need to do these things right now here. I wanted to ask yeah, Vic... It's uh, difficult once you're already deep into the drought to start thinking about all these things. Well, I, I know, but I mean, we're, we're just crossing our fingers out here that the that we could have some good weather coming in this winter. If so, it just gives us a temporary fix. We need to get cracking, start monitoring wells, start coming up with backup programs. But Vic, I wanted to ask you, uh, in our own county here, uh, as the project manager of OES, Office of OES, is that right? Office of Emergency Services. <laughs> okay, Emergency Services. Mm-hmm. Have you been uh, tasked with developing a plan for, you know, massive water shortage here? Are you at least, are you looking at it now? I mean, we're talking uh, about mitigation here, which is what Jim's talking right. about. Right, yeah, we have created a, a, dr- a drought planning uh, planning team, and that includes all the water districts in the county as well as uh, a lot of ag agencies. And we have been, and we'll start again meeting monthly, and just basically discussing uh, some of the impacts of the drought and where we need to go before it happens. But uh, for an actual plan on a piece of paper, no. Okay, but the, the, the wheels are turning. The, the wheels are turning. Um, even, actually, uh, on this Wednesday, the uh, state is coming up to brief uh, some of the county leaders on some of the programs and what's happening in the other counties to let us know what the impacts are if we get that far and what kind of assistance is available. Oh, that's that's good. So we're moving on it. Jim, regulations and incentives for water conservation. I mean, this is we have been asked in all the various county, all the various water districts here in the state of California that um, that we need to cut back by up to maybe 36% in some areas. In fact, in a lot of areas, it's 36%. It is thirty six percent in our area. In our area now, okay, okay. How do you how do you create incentive for people to accomplish that? The downside is our water purveyors are going to be uh, fined some pretty high penalties. There'll be some pretty high penalties for if that's not reached. And and uh, the greatest and worst consequence of all is we could actually have uh, great difficulty in providing water for ourselves next year if we don't meet these these uh, goals this year. So, what kind of incentives have you guys looked at? You should not underestimate the value of public education. One of the things, you know, one of the case studies we had in our report had to do with Albuquerque, which actually did a guide way back in 1996, uh, giving people a number of alternatives for landscaping, which, of course, as you had some discussion earlier on the show about the use of water for lawn lawn watering, and uh, so they put out this guide that basically provided alternatives, for instance, to turf grass, included data on, uh, you know, sunlight exposure, water needs of various kinds of uh, plantings. Uh, of course, is an alternative. And then, you know, basically trying to raise the level of awareness of the, the homeowners and so forth, doing, you know, seminars on irrigation efficiency, things of that sort. One of the remarkable things without going into all the details of what Albuquerque did in that outreach effort is that they started out with an original goal in 1995 to reduce uh, per capita water usage from 250 gallons a day to 175. By the time they got to 2006, they were already setting a goal down to 150, and they got it down by 2011 to 148. Well, 250 to 148 is a remarkable drop in per person, you know, per capita water usage. It shows that you can make a difference over time. Now, you know, time is obviously your enemy once you're 
in a disaster. But still, just thinking about that in the long term, that certainly makes that community much more drought resilient than if they were still at those old water consumption levels. Because this whole thing, the whole issue of drought is really one of matching water needs with the, you know, the, with the, the amount of water availability. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. and so we're we we're very much caught in a in a dilemma here. We we it's so hard to get the general public to work come forward on this thing, and that's why public facilitation is so very very important. And we do have a need right now is that we're running out of time. Oh darn it! We never have enough time. Well, you know what? It comes it, it really, Jim. It comes down to strong, effective leadership. I I think uh, both Frank. Meacham, who is a, a, a very effective uh, leader. You, you might be chuckling now, Frank. I know you're listening off air. But uh, it's, it's true. You, you've captured the attention of, of so many people over there that, that need your, your, your advice and, and your help. And also Tom, Tom Tebb, with what he has accomplished and through many others, like the mayor of, of that small little town, that rural town up there in, in the state of Washington, that, um, that, that you need those, that leadership, but also you need the willingness of the public. If, without the public engaged in this thing, we're not going anywhere. We, we need to engage the public, and, and so I'm, I'm putting that out to our, our own county. The people need to remember that personal choices may affect both the collective and the individual well-being. So we need to be engaged in this thing and not forget that how we participate in mitigations now has a huge effect on how we respond when a drought actually happens, which I think Vic could probably say, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so what do you do when there are too many dry wells in a community? Well, I think the answer is you work together. That's how we get through this thing. It's always a good idea to plan for the worst and hope for the best. So I want to thank uh, KVMR, Paul Emery, Vic, Vic Ferreira, Frank Meacham, Tom Tom Tebb, Jim. I want to thank you and Angela for running the Periscope, and Aida, my wife, for running Operation Unite's Facebook page, and Richard Miller, who's supporting us also in the studio this evening. So for those of you with more questions, uh, let's shift gears when we get off air here. We're going to see you at Periscope. And remember, we will always always have water working together.